Philippi, what we commonly call Philippians, has a theme that runs all the way through it of joy. And the only way to truly understand this letter is to see that theme not just as a footnote, but like a mighty river that's current is flowing all the way through every verse on every page. Last week, we looked at this passage on Jesus being revealed for who He truly is, where every knee would bow and every tongue confess that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we looked at it and we see from the Scripture that it includes judgment, but the theme that truly penetrates the totality of Scripture is celebration. This is the coronation or the crowning of Jesus Christ. And what comes together is everything that God has made will come to a point and use their voice, use their instruments of whatever they are to come together in celebration to to proclaim Jesus is Lord. That means every tribe, every tongue, every language, every type of music, and it's a new song that's brought together because joining in this celebration is all of humanity and the angels and the creatures and even earth itself. It says that the mountains will clap their hands, that the rivers will praise. They'll bring rhythm to this song. And so it's the most incredible celebration ever, no matter what you've pictured as a great celebration. In a few few hours, there'll be 80 kids at camp and um, and a few of us excited counselors. And I I promise you, it is going to get loud tonight. And tomorrow, it'll get even louder. And Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, maybe Friday will be a little less loud because we'll be so exhausted that maybe that celebration will die down a little bit, but only a little bit. It's going to be full of life. That is the current that is running through Philippians. Now, what he does is says because of that, because that is what Paul is focused on, he's able to see the difficulties and the trials that he has already endured the suffering, the loss, the failure, and now the isolation of being in prison and in chains. He's able to see that with eyes of faith because he's focused on what God ultimately is going to do. And he says, because of that, do this. I want you to start by looking at verse 12. There's... um, There's an old preacher saying, and I try not to do too many old preacher sayings because there's a reason why they're old and they probably should stay that way. Um, But whenever you see in the scripture a therefore, you should ask, what is it? There you go. Okay. What is it therefore? Yeah. But, you know, therefore is one of those words that we use a lot in contracts and in legal work and in some translations of the scripture. um, It's not one that we use that frequently, sometimes in conversation, but what he's saying is because of this celebration, because Jesus is going to be revealed, here is how you're to live. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure." 
Here's what he's saying. He's saying, learn to delight yourself in God, to take pleasure in God because God desires to take pleasure in you. Have you ever really thought about that? I mean, oftentimes when we think about God, we think from the perspective of, is God disappointed in me? Because oftentimes what we see is our failure. We see our sin. And at least in my life, it's like um, mud on the windshield. It covers my view of everything I see because I know who I am. I know my shortcomings, my failures. But God in His grace has washed that clean. And the way that He looks at you and the way that He looks at me, if we've trusted Him as Savior and Lord, is as His children with whom He takes incredible joy. You are His delight. In Hebrews, we we read this earlier in our series that for the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. That joy is you. You are the one he was focused on. You are the one in whom he takes delight. And that's the, pat- the picture it's, it says here, is that we can bring pleasure to God. Now, if we really allow our hearts and our minds to, to focus in on that, it will change how we go through our day. When we begin to ask, God, how can I bring you pleasure today? How can I bring a smile to the face of creator God? Isn't that a humbling thought and an amazing thought that you and I can bring joy to God's heart and a smile to his face? Not because we've accomplished some great thing, but because we're his children. Now think about it. If you're a parent, there is almost no greater joy than when your child, all on their own, does something for you. This, um, two days ago, we had a, a little voice message on our Google phone, and, um, and it was our granddaughter, Avery, who's five, and, and it was a great little message, you know, because I, I realized as I'm listening to it, she has never left a voicemail before. This was a brand new thing for her, and so she calls, and, you know, we didn't answer because we weren't there, and, uh, and, and you hear in the background, asking mom can I leave a message? And, you know, and somewhere her mom obviously said yes. And, uh, and she goes, you know, this is, this is Avery. I just wanted to call because I love you. That was it. You could not ask for a greater message to bring joy to a grandparent's heart then that little message of our five-year-old who, on her own, who she was just thinking of, of Papa Amazing, which is my name, thank you very much, and Grandma Cuckoo, okay? That, yeah. Could be, could be actually twisted in reality, but that's the names we're going with, okay? Papa Amazing and Grandma Cuckoo. And, you know, she was just thinking, thinking of us and wanted to call us. How exciting. We can bring that kind of joy to God as his children because he delights in us. And so he's saying, what I'm I'm calling you to is to recognize that you can bring pleasure to God. The great Puritan preacher Richard Baxter said, if you seek first to please God, 
and are satisfied therein, you have but one to please instead of the multitudes. And a multitude of masters are far harder to please than one. Because the truth is, if we seek to please ourselves or if we seek to please people, when that becomes big, pleasing God will always become small in our heart and in our life. The reformers did their best to try to summarize why we exist. And they put it into the, to the catechism in order to be able to teach um, every believer some of the foundational truths of the Scriptures. And when it came to why we are, they said the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, in English, chief end, again, is a phrase that we don't use very much in modern times, but when we think about that, we tend to think of purpose, and that's a part of it, but it's not the whole meaning that's there. What it really means is our completion. You and I become complete when the desire of our heart is to bring glory, which means to reflect God back as who He is so that others will, will see Him and make Him known and then enjoy Him forever. You see, our greatest delight is not success. It's not happiness. It's not um, having our, our wishes come true, our greatest joy and delight is God Himself. And when that becomes the pursuit of who we are and what we do, we're complete. And think about it. Inside each one of us, there is this knowledge that there's something that's been missing. And we try to fill that peace that's missing with all kinds of things, but it's designed to be filled by God, by God alone, by Himself. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, man cannot please God without bringing to himself a great amount of happiness. For if any man pleases God, it is because God accepts him as his son or daughter and gives him the blessing of adoption, pours out upon him the bounties of his grace and makes him a blessed man in this life and ensures him a crown of life everlasting. That is our joy. That's what Paul was focused on here in Philippians. And so when he says, to work out your salvation, when he says to change and transform and allow my spirit to um, redirect your behavior, it is for joy, the joy of bringing pleasure to God because he is the one we love with all of our being. All through the scripture, we see this theme about pleasing God. That's what we're created to do. Hebrews, in the great hall of faith, tells us this over and over again. Here's just one example from verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Enoch was taken up that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and believe that he rewards those who seek him. It begins with a life of faith. Believing God is who he says he is in his word. 
And then out of obedience, saying, Lord, I want to live based upon who you say you are, and I want to bring you pleasure. The Olympics are going on right now, and, and, and we cheer for, for the athletes, those who, who succeed. We cheer for the athletes from our home countries. We cheer for the athletes in, in the Czech Republic because this is, you know, this is the place we have the privilege of, of living. Uh, but one of the great Olympians of the past um, Eric Little, he said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Now, that truth is something that, that should sink deep within us. He didn't say, when I go to church, I feel God's pleasure, although I'm pretty convinced that that was true as well. He said, when I run, when I do what God made me really good at, what he gave me those gifts to do, I feel his pleasure. God created you uniquely with abilities, with passions, with heart that you can use every one of those in the workplace, in athletics like, like um, Eric Little did, in your relationships. You can do it all for the pleasure of God. When you love him with all of your heart and all of your life. You see, obedience and faith fit together. The truth is, we only really believe what we live. We may say we believe more, but if it does not result in a life change and transformation and obedience, my belief is in vain. But when I live out that which I claim to believe, and grow in my faith and understanding of God, I also grow in pleasure. Because the truth is, obedience to God is the gateway to pleasure. That's what Paul is pointing at. He says, remember what celebration is coming, and therefore, this is how you're to live. This is what's to happen in your life. And this is a theme that's all the way through the Scripture. So what are some of the things that the scripture says about pleasing God? Because he says God is at work in us to do his will and his good pleasure. So how do we please God? What does the scriptures tell us? Let me just um, give you a quick list of a few things that are found in the scriptures. Romans 12 tells us that we please God when we present ourselves as a living sacrifice and say, God, I'm yours. Do with me what you want. The next verse tells us that we please God when we allow His Holy Spirit to transform our thinking. This is going to be one of the themes that will be uh, part of our teaching this week at camp when we're um, preaching and teaching and learning about not being of this world as Jesus instructed. Allowing Him to change the way that we think. We please God when we don't put a stumbling block in the way of another Christian's life. Romans 14, 18. And actually... Philippians, we're going to read in just a few moments, says the same thing. It warns us against disputes and against grumbling because those will hinder the body of Christ. And if we love God with all that we are, we want to build up the things that he loves, which is other believers, and accomplish his purpose and his work. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 34, tells us that being holy, which means to be set apart in our bodies, that we um, understand that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that He lives within us. 
that that brings pleasure to God when we allow our life to reflect the reality of who He is. Proclaiming the gospel, according to Galatians 1.10, brings God pleasure. Using our resources that God has given us brings God pleasure. Um, Philippians 4.18 says that when um, the church at Philippi gave sacrificially to advance the gospel, it brought pleasure to God. Walking in a manner of life that is worthy of the Lord brings God pleasure. Tells us in Philippians chapter 1 as well as in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 3 tells us that obeying our parents as an authority that God has placed in our life brings Him pleasure. You see, all these things about obedience, ultimately, we need to not look at them as a list of do's and don'ts, but look at them as opportunities to express love. I never felt it was a duty to do things for my wife. Yes, because <laughs> I would get in trouble if I did. Um, even when we, when we were dating, I would think and dream of ways, how can I make her happy? Why? Because I loved her, and I wanted to know more about her. I wanted to discover what a life with her would be like and, and how to go about that. The same is true with God for each and every one of us. Obedience is pleasure. It is not a burden. Here's the lie of the enemy. He will try to get you and I to look at obedience as an obstacle in our relationship with God instead of an opportunity to bring God joy and pleasure and in return experience his delight. Here's the great lie of the enemy. If the enemy can get you to ask this question, what's wrong with blank? You are in grave danger. What's wrong with blank? And the reason why that is such a dangerous question is because it is usually our old nature that is at work looking for a loophole in order to do what we want rather than to have an opportunity to obey Jesus Christ. Because each and every one of us will find a way to justify our actions. Even if we know God says that is wrong. So instead, the question we need to ask is, is this pleasing to God? When we begin to ask that question, it changes things. Even as, as parents, you know, um, we have four children, and, and I certainly made plenty of mistakes as a parent, you know, but God was incredibly gracious to us, and, 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 and He's worked in the hearts and lives of our children. But one of the things that I believe he prompted us to do was to begin simply asking our, our children this question as they were um, wrestling with different behaviors or different things, whether they were wrestling, should I listen to this kind of music or not? You know, or, you know, Dad, is it okay to, um, to listen to this or to do this, to go here? You know, we, we taught them to guard their heart because that's what the Scripture tells us in Proverbs. But we got them to simply ask this question, is it right? I... I you need to answer that question because you need to own your faith. Is it right? Now, that became a little saying in our, in our house, and I may have shared this before, but it's a good saying, so I'm going to teach it to you. It is always right to do right. 
It is never wrong to do right. It is never right to do wrong, right? Right. All right, let's, let's try that again. It's always right to do right. Very good. It's never wrong to do right. It's never right to do wrong. Some of you haven't got it, but that's okay. <laughs> it's kind of confusing. Basically, the short version is do right. Ask the Lord, is this right? Is this pleasing to you? Because here's what happens. When you start there, you're looking for ways to please God and honor Him. And it will always lead to joy. Obedience is the gateway to pleasure. Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, not only when I'm there, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, there have been some that have used this passage to talk about a works-based um, salvation, and that's not at all what it teaches. It teaches that God is the one who initiates, that He is the one who works in us first, that His Holy Spirit is the one that draws us to faith in the first place, and that His grace is also something that works like a magnet to draw us to Himself. His goodness is what changes us. But because of His goodness, when we recognize His goodness, we recognize His grace and His presence and power in our life, there should be transformation in how we live. There should be ways that we can measure what God is doing in our life. We can only work out what God has first placed in or worked in us. And so that's what this is teaching us to do, is to examine our heart and life and to see if our actions are matching the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. And that's why he says he gives them some really practical things that have to do with the life of God's church. He says, first of all, in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The reason he instructs us to be really careful about our heart attitudes is because that is an opportunity for us to fully place our trust in God. When you face injustice, even within, um, with other believers, where you're treated improperly, when we choose to trust God rather than grumble, it is an opportunity for us to shine and show the difference that our faith makes. And ultimately, when we do that in relation to others who are outside of the church, when we have an attitude that is dramatically different, where we're not demanding our rights because that's what we deserve. Rather, we're trusting in God. It makes our lives shine out forth so that others may see there's something dramatically different about who we are. And as they begin to see the light of Christ shining through us, He has an opportunity to reveal Himself and make Himself known. Probably the greatest instruction I ever received in my training as a pastor was simply this statement. When you err, and you will, err on the side of grace, because grace makes opportunity for God. 
it allows us to respond in the same way that God has responded to us. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He extends his grace to us. And that's why as a church, part of our values are to love God, to live truth, and to give grace to others. And in fact, the very next verse here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 16 says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. When Jesus came, John chapter 1 tells us that he came to show us the Father and he came full of two things, grace and truth. Those two things are how God chose to present himself to us. The reality that he is God and we are not, the reality that we are sinners and he is holy, and that there is a gap in between and we desperately need someone to stand in our place, which is what Jesus Christ did, that's truth. But he came with incredible grace as well in saying, because I love you, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to take your place. I'm going to die on a cross for you. I'm going to bear the full penalty of sin on my own body in order to bring you into my family. Grace and truth work together. And grace and truth need to be the defining qualities of our life because we are designed to bring others to an awareness and understanding that God is a God of grace and truth. So he encourages that. And he says, when that is what defines our life, then the circumstances really don't matter. That's why Paul's able to say, even if I'm poured out like a drink offering, and a drink offering was something that was precious, that was given, that was simply poured out on the ground to the Lord to say, Lord, I'm giving this back to you, not for any other purpose whatsoever. Use it as you wish. And that's what he's saying about his own life. Even if he is going to be executed, it's okay. Because his pursuit is not about himself, not about his success, not about his comfort, but about showing the grace and truth of God and bringing pleasure and delight to God. God dwells in us in order for us to delight in him and reveal himself to others. But there's an exclusivity to this joy. It says, work out your own salvation. Salvation doesn't come from going to church or being, being baptized, although those are very important steps. It comes by personally confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, by trusting in what He has done individually. And if you can't remember a time or a place in your own heart and life, when you simply called upon the Lord and said, Lord, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe He died for me. Would you do it today? Because you see, if you don't invite Him into your life, you're not going to have the joy He offers. And you're not going to experience the transformation that He desires to do in us and through us. And God made it incredibly simple he said, whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord, upon Jesus' name, would be saved. That's all he asks us to do. So simple, but absolutely transformational. All right, well, let's end with this. We are designed to bring God pleasure. That's what completes us. 
But if we're really going to understand that, we need to see a glimpse of the pleasure that God takes in us, of the joy He finds in you and I. Because in a moment, we're going to, to celebrate communion. And the bread and the cup represent God's gift of himself to us. The bread representing his body that was given for us. The, blood represent, or the cup representing the blood that was shed for our forgiveness. They're pictures of his grace and of his truth, of our need and his incredible generosity and grace in giving himself for us. But oftentimes, we miss out on understanding that God really is incredibly interested in you and I personally, that you are his delight. There's a beautiful passage in Zephaniah chapter 3, and one of the reasons I want to go there is because Zephaniah chapter 3 is another one of the coronation songs in the Old Testament that points to when Jesus Christ will be recognized as King of kings and Lord of lords, but there's more to it. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to the Old Testament book of Zephaniah. Um, it's just a few pages before the New Testament. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 says this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. The song that we sing, Mighty to Save, comes from this passage right here. Here's what he says. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God sings about you, about me, about his children. <laughs> when, when each of our grandkids have been born, I've written songs to them. And they are the dumbest songs on the planet. But they're their songs, okay? And so I sing them whether they like them or not because... That's how I want to express my joy over, over my grandchildren. God writes a song about us, his children, because he exalts in us. And, and one of the great things here is sometimes the words that we see in English just aren't big enough. Okay, we see the word rejoice and he will rejoice over you. There are several words in the Hebrew language that are used for rejoice. But this particular one means jumping up and down. Okay, it, that's literally what it means. He is jumping up and down over you. Can you get that picture that God's that interested in you and me? That he loves us that much? And he sings over us. Well, I told you that this, this verse here is part of a bigger picture. Back up in Zephaniah to, chapter, or to, in, to verse 14. Last week, we, we looked at one of the psalms that was a coronation song of Jesus. Um, this is another one. Verse 14, this is the instruction to us. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst you shall never fe again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, let not your hands grow weak. So he's saying, this is our song. 
This is the thing we're to sing about the greatness of what God has done. And it is a time that is, or it is a song that is sung when Jesus is declared King of kings and Lord of lords, when every knee bows and tongue confesses, when he writes the scales of justice and he brings judgment and he brings reward. He's saying, we sing this song because everyone will see what God has done, and then God sings back. That's what what comes next. We sing to God because what he has done, and then he sings back, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. Here's his promise. And it's the same promise that we see in the New Testament when Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glories that will be revealed. In the same way, this song says, those who mourn, those who have gone through deep seasons of grief and your heart is ripped in two because of the brokenness and loss He's saying, I'm going to change it and I'm going to make, a, make your life, your rejoicing like a festival. So you'll no longer suffer reproach. Verse 19, behold, at that time I will deal with all the oppressors, all evil, and I will save the lame, those who are broken, or gather the outcasts. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. And at that time, I will gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before the eyes of the Lord. That's his promise. That's why he says, delight in me because I delight in you. Obedience is simply a way to say, God, I love you. That's what he's calling us to. Isaiah chapter 62 gives us one more glimpse of the delight God takes in us. All through the New Testament, the church, those who believe in Christ from every denomination, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, those who have faith in Christ, they are called the bride of Christ. Well, here is the song to the bride in Isaiah 62 verse 3. This is how God sees us. He says, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight. That's how much God loves us. You shall be called my delight is in her. And your land shall be married, for the Lord delights in you. And this picture is is saying, it's written to, to the nation of Israel first and foremost, but it's expanded to include all of God's people. But it's a picture and a promise of God coming to our rescue, to draw us and bring us to himself, and to unite us with him as the bride of Christ with the bridegroom Jesus For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. 
The book of Philippians was written by a man who was deeply saturated in the scriptures of the Old Testament. When he writes about this moment when Jesus will be crowned King of Kings, these are the background songs that are running through his heart and mind. As he's there in prison, and he's urging us to live a life that reflects Christ in obedience, it is because of joy. He's able with eyes of faith to see the completion. And that's what God invites us to do. The way to go through trial, through difficulty, through disappointment, through failure, is to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And to fix our eyes on His crowning when everything will be revealed and to take our delight now in Him. Eyes focused on the future, but hearts given fully to Him now is the pathway to true joy. Delight in God because He delights in you. One of the greatest illustrations in all the scripture that God truly delights in you is what we call communion or the Lord's Supper because he's invited us to his table. When he gave us the Lord's Supper, he he told his disciples, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. He wanted to sit down with his disciples because this was a picture of what was gonna happen in the future. It is a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so when he invites us to his table, it is with reverence, it is with remembrance of what he has done, but it is with incredible expectation. You see, the bread and the cup are God's wedding vows to you and I. It's his promise. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I've proven it by giving myself sacrificially for you. So I want to encourage you to spend a few moments preparing your heart and then we're going to, I'm going to ask the servers to come and we're going to, to serve the Lord's Supper. The bread represents the body of Christ that was willingly and freely given for us. The cup represents his blood that was shed to cover over our sin and give us forgiveness. When we take of the bread and we drink of the cup, we are proclaiming his death, but we are also anticipating Jesus' return to come for us. And we're experiencing an expression of his delight in you and I as his children. So I want to encourage you to spend a few moments just preparing your heart, asking the Lord, is there anything in my life right now, Lord, that's not pleasing to you, that stands in the way between you and I? And confess that and turn from it. And then with joy, come to his table and receive what he has given to us of his body and of his blood. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for delighting in us. Even though we don't deserve it, even though our lives are stained with sin and rebellion and selfishness, you chose out of grace to give your life for us. 
Lord, thank you. Thank you for loving us that much. And Lord, as we come before your table, we do declare Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. We declare that Jesus giving of his body in our place took the punishment that we deserve as we partake of the bread. We declare as we partake of the cup that Jesus' blood was shed to cover over our sin and to clothe us with his righteousness. So we receive these in remembrance of you. And Lord, we desire for our lives to bring you pleasure. Thank you for inviting us to your table, Lord God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask for the servers to come and then just invite you to come and you can partake of the elements um, here at the table. You can take them back to your seats and meditate for a while or do it together as a family, but we invite you to come and receive of the bread and of the cup in remembrance of Jesus Christ.